this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book about some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. My guest this week is David Snowden. We are discussing his book, Writing the Prize Fight, Pierce Egan's Boxiana World, published in 2013 by Peter Long. As David explains at the start of the interview, he is a literary scholar, and his book examines the themes and style of Pierce Egan's writing on English prize fighting, which was published in the early 1800s in multiple volumes titled Boxiana. The book also presents a detailed and colorful view of the early history of boxing and sports writing. And David earned last year's Lord Aberdare Literary Prize for his contribution to the scholarship on British sports history. In our interview, David tells us of the broad community of fighters, patrons, gamblers, and boxing enthusiasts who together made up what was called the fancy in early 19th century England. He discusses what made Pierce Egan's writing distinctive and how Egan influenced later writers of the 1800s, including Charles Dickens. David also comments on the lasting influence of Egan's work, which we read and hear today in Contemporary Sports Commentary. Here's my interview with David Snowden. Uh, my guest for this episode of New Books and Sports is uh, David Snowden on the line from Sunderland. David, welcome to the podcast. Uh, hello, thank you very much. So we typically start each episode of the podcast with a bit of background about the author. So uh, would you please tell us uh, something about yourself and, and how you developed your interest in the boxing culture of early 19th century Britain? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I went into academic life um, relatively late. I used to work for a, a bank and... Um, um, actually, I was in my 30s. I decided uh, to go into full-time education. Um, did an English literature degree at my local university, which is uh, Sunderland University of Sunderland, um, and I enjoyed that. And decided I was going to stay on and do a master's. Um, and at the time, I was looking to move from. Uh, my dissertation at undergraduate level had been on Samuel, Dr. Samuel Johnson and his periodical essays. So I was, I was searching around um, during the summer between doing my degree and my master's um, to a, a new subject area. And some of my summer reading, I latched on to uh, in an anthology uh, on 19th century uh, literature or romantic literature. Um, 
on T.C. Egan. There was a couple of illustrations from his life in London, which is his 1821 metropolitan uh, work, and it looked a rather interesting uh, topic, and I managed to obtain the book uh, via interlibrary loans, uh, had a read of it. Um, it wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be. I, I imagined in my, um, in, my, in my mind that it was going to be a cross between the Dickens' Pickwick papers and perhaps George MacDonald Fraser's Flashman novels. Um, so it, it wasn't exactly what I'd expected. However, I, I recognised it as a rich source of material to um, do a master's um, dissertation on. Um, so that's that's that went fine. Um, and so the next stage, obviously, was I was going to stay in education uh, to do my doctorate, my PhD, um, and I moved to the University of Newcastle to do that. But we're still in the northeast of England. Um, and again, I was searching about, well, shall I, I've done Samuel Johnson, I've done PSA, and shall I look for something new? Uh, but one of my professors at, um, at Sunderland, uh, although I didn't end up doing my PhD there, suggested, well, you've looked at PSA as metropolitan writing, and you've done a lot of research, um, got a lot of research under your belt. Why don't you look at his sporting uh, literature is is particular in particular his pugilistic writing, and this seemed a logical, uh, a good piece of advice. Um, so I uh, drafted my proposal to various institutions based on those lines to um, to look at um, PSA and pugilistic writing uh, with the with the with the benefit the added benefit that I already had a great deal of relevant uh, research. Um, in the locker, so to speak, um, that was going to come into play for my uh, in-depth research into Peter Sagan's life in London. So I uh, did my PhD in Newcastle, and I completed that in it was actually 2008. Mm-hmm. So is there a lot of scholarly literature or any scholarly literature on Pierce Egan in terms of the looking at him in the landscape of early 19th century British writing? Uh, no, and this is one of the... Um, Arguably, one of the attractions of, of 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 going into an area which hasn't been not not the well-worn path. I mean, I, I mean, I, I could have considered likes of Charles Dickens or Virginia Woolf, which were very admirable topics or subject areas to to go into. But they they seem as if they've been covered from from most angles imaginable. And so, venturing with Piers Egan, it was a case of. Uh, this was, generally speaking, something new. There were okay. There were there were articles. There were there were essays in scholarly journals. The the occasional one, but the only real uh, sustained piece of writing, a book devoted to Pigasy, and was the 1971 work by John C. Reed, which was called um, Books and Bruises, um, and that was a very broad um, study of Egan. It was more of a, a biography, and it covered a lot of ground uh, where his Boxiana writings, only um, perhaps a couple of chapters worth, um, and a very good book, but it, it's the only one that, to, to my knowledge, that existed of P.S. Egan, and, 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 and therein only a couple of chapters specifically uh, devoted to his sports writing or his pugilistic writing. Mm-hmm. 
So your professor had suggested that you look at his, his boxing writing. Did you, did you have an interest in boxing before that? No, I didn't. Um, and again, even up to the present day, um, I do have some general knowledge about boxing or sport in general, many sports from from my um, younger days. And my I would say I have a lot of in-depth. Um, I'll be very good at quizzes on the 1970s <laughs> and 1980s sports. Um, but I wasn't interested particularly in boxing. I, I, could, I could name a few um, significant boxing and boxers from the 70s and 80s, sure. Um, and, and of course, what academics, if, if I'm coming at it from more of a, from an academic angle, one could argue that what I'm looking at, bare knuckle prize fighting, is so far removed from the modern day boxing world of gloved fighters and, and generally speaking, 12 or 15 three minute rounds. Um, that it, I, I wouldn't say it's a, it, it certainly wasn't a prerequisite to be interested in boxing because I, mm -hmm. I feel as if there's that obvious connection um, between boxing and the bare knuckle and its forerunner, the bare knuckle prize fighting, an obvious connection. But in the same breath, the, the two, they're almost two separate worlds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, so we're, uh, we're, we'll turn to the book and we'll discuss uh, Egan's writing, but, uh, but first you should tell us about uh, the context of the fancy. So, so what was the fancy? Yes, and um, the fancy generally with a capital F would be, um, it, was a, 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 a it was mainly in the Regency, um, which is early 19th century um, Britain. You're talking about approximate dates, I mean, the official regencies, I think there's 19, sorry, 1810 to 1821 when the Prince Regent took the throne. But it's, it's generally called a, a broader period in that, in that first half of the 19th century. Um, yes, the fancy was applied to uh, people who were interested in sport, who followed the sporting events. Um, but it was particularly applied to the the world of prize fighting, the the the, the prize fighting followers, um, also the the, the the typical characters who were described in Egan's metropolitan work about life in London were these men about town, the sporting books. There were, um, and, and you did, I would say to be a member of the fancy, uh, it could be uh, across. Uh, class across a more of a, a casual um, term, but um, I think was a particularly applicable to this um, a certain class of sporting gent. Mm -hmm. And so this was something that involved both upper classes as well as lower classes. Very much. It was um, there was a, a heterogeneous mix okay. of um, of characters. Um, even the sport itself was supposed to permit or allow for uh, interclass bouts or that means an up, a member of the upper class could step into the the prize fight arena with a member of the lower classes but that was in theory i think in reality that that class actual fighting, the fighters themselves, um, the upper classes restricted themselves to the act, to uh, being patrons or, or, or doing the publicity um, or, or 
Yeah, um, really, I suppose you could argue that that carried on into the 20th century. They they made the money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, was this a period when prize fighting was, was illegal or legal? What was its status? It 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 was it, it was illegal. Um, uh, it, ironically, things like cockfighting uh, was still legal. I think when prize fighting was had been um, made illegal, um, I, f- I think. Um, well, actually, cockfighting became illegal in 1849, but uh, it was many decades before then um, where the uh, prize fighting was, was was susceptible to be clamped down on with regard to laws against um, a fray and breaches of the peace. Uh, so there was very much a clandestine um, arrangement regarding prize fights being arranged that uh, it would be very much word of mouth um, and the fancy Mm-hmm. Um, or the pugilistic club would try and select venues, open air venues. These were generally that um, were very close to county borders, so that if they were stopped late on in proceedings before the fight commenced in one county, the whole um, entourage would trips maybe four or five miles across the county border and try to look in the next county. So it was was technically illegal, but again, um, especially for the big prize fights, um, sometimes a blind eye was turned, and especially when some competition would emerge between various towns to to have the fight um, take place on or around their vicinity because it was recognized that it was an economically profitable um, thing to happen, um, especially for the the local taverns and shopkeepers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this was something, so even though Pierce Egan was based in London as a writer, um, the the fights that he was watching, the matches, uh, would take place in the countryside surrounding the city then? Yeah, and places like, I mean, for for London... um, Wimbledon Common used to be used, for mm-hmm. example. Um, I mean, usually they the, the were quite a hardy bunch, the, the fancy, and they would they would trips around the countryside for quite a number of miles, if, especially if the, the attraction was there for a, a major fight, which had ex- excited the um, the imagination. Um, there were other pugilistic hotbeds. In in England, Bristol uh, was a was a very um, well known place for producing boxes and um, and also, but to have the fights reported with any great regularity, uh, um, an ambitious prize fighter would have to eventually gravitate towards the London mm-hmm. London area to, to to raise his profile. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so what types of crowd, what kinds of crowds are the size are we talking about? So these are in the thousands, correct? I, I would say for the, for the big fights, um, the smaller affairs or the impromptu affairs would, uh, would certainly be not, not, not thousands. Okay. Um, but, um, it's, 
this is this is the this is the thing which it's difficult to gauge the um the small the smaller scale affairs very much i think relied on the likes of p s e and to to generate the publicity and the interest because not every fight was on the scale of a uh, crib v molyneux or a gem belcher versus hentius or even going back into the 1820s the subject of william hazlitt's fa- quite famous essay of the fight with the the fight between bill neat and uh, tom hickman known as the gas man they were these fights were in the minority Okay. So they 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 could um, generate these big attendances that you, that you mentioned, but on the smallest scale, um, certainly not those numbers. And then you had to rely on the, the imaginative and idiosyncratic, almost reporting style of Piers Egan to to generate the interest. Okay, so the, so so Egan then performed a function for. Uh, members of the fancy in London who were unable to travel out into the countryside to see the matches. Certainly, and I think as time goes on and you go into the 1830s, um, prize fighting was on the wane, mm-hmm. and there's some of the descriptions where you can imagine um, uh, a person who was keen to witness the fight. It was, uh, I think, by it got it got to a stage where you had to be quite a die-hard. As follower of the prize fighting world, to, to to get up at in the early hours of the morning to undertake possibly quite a lengthy trek. There was obviously the outlay of money um, you would have to pull out, perhaps to for food or perhaps even overnight accommodation. And there's there's an argument to be made that. Um, to, to, to go that far and then to end up in a rather what could be a very brutish, unmannerly crowd for a for a, a long distance view of the fight, um, well well to the back, that it would be um, it would probably get to a stage where you would think twice about venturing out and and to have the the boxing the the prize fight reports in a convenient form and delivered in an entertaining style it would be there's there's a point to be made that it would be a, a preferable thing to be sitting in one by one's fireside reading the reports rather than getting out in the uh, in the elements for a restricted view so the same the same question that we have today is it is it better to watch a match on our uh flat screen high definition televisions or go with the crowds and and deal with the elements and the high cost of food and so forth at the stadium yeah i, f- I think what um what doesn't transfer to the modern era is or always let is not an issue in the modern era is that gambling um yeah, yeah. the gambling element was such a major part of the the perhaps the attraction of being present in the in the nineteenth century, whereas that isn't obviously that's not an obstacle as one could um, 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 have access to online and well, I'm I'm not really into gambling, but I, I I'm aware that the, it's it's very you could be watching as you say your your big screen TV and still and still be able to if if gambling was your thing you could gamble to your heart's content, whereas um, perhaps people who wanted to to get out and meet their meet their friends and socialize and drink and 
indulge in this really heavy gaming aspect, which was which was part of the part and parcel of the of the fancy and such a preoccupation. Um, I think sometimes when they spoke, they, there's some snatches of dialogue where people are, are um, if, if they're speaking, hardly a sentence goes by with a, without some gambling um, reference. Mm-hmm. So I think that was um, that was a, certainly a, an, an attraction that would, if, if you were really keen on the gambling aspect, that would keep, perhaps keep you going to the fights. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we have these upper class spectators and and gamblers and patrons of the fights and lower class boxers. Uh, what what benefits did the boxers gain from uh, from being part of this? I, th- I think there was a there was a re- there was an an air of uh, there, there was a, sorry there was a reciprocal mm-hmm. arrangement. Whereas the, the the upper class patron would get some reflected glory. From hanging out, so to speak, with the lower class man who he wouldn't normally be wish to be socialised with, but because he's a famous pugilist, then the upper class patron gets this reflected glory of socialising with this uh, revered prize fighter. The prize fighter will have more money at his disposal. He will uh, dress fashionably. Eat well, and obviously it's in the um, his patron's interest to make sure that he's he's well fed and, and he's fit to fight and, he, and he's strong. Um, I think that sometimes I, I get an inkling with PSE and that one or two fight lower class prize fighters they sometimes stepped over a line mm-hmm. where they got a little too used to socialising in the upper-class circles and they temporarily forgot that they couldn't just swing by to the um, the mansion or the upper-class dwelling um, uninvited. Um, they weren't... There's a question of whether they were tolerated. There's a couple of examples um, given, I think... Um, uh, that Egan mentioned specifically, he makes specific to mention that a prize fighter's downfall has been expedited by the fact that he got, um, well, his head was turned by the, the grand lifestyle and they, they imagine that they're part and parcel of that scene, but when they're, arguably, when they're, their use has run its limit, run its course, to the upper class patron, the patron, if he was a ruthless man, could just um, cut them off, and um, that, that exacerbated their, their downfall on some occasions. Mm-hmm. So let's add in uh, another element to the fancy, and that is the the writing. And something you explain at the start of the book is that Pierce Egan was was not alone in writing about boxing at the time. So can you talk about uh, the broader uh, broader environment of, of early sports writing? Well, the, the, I think the, the big fight between uh, Tom Crib and Tom Molyneux, the, the original match and then the rematch in 1811, um, it seems as if one or two publications latched onto that as a the publicity as a as a starting point to to issue a volume um, um pan- pancratia or pancratia i'm never, i'm not I'm never sure exactly how 
how how people would pronounce that, but that was produced in 1812, but that was anonymous. Um, you've got Bell's, Bell's Life in London, um, there at uh, Vincent Dowling. Um, Egan's great rival was John B., uh, that's G-O-N, John B., um, which was a pseudonym of John, John Badcock, who was very much... Um, uh, on, out, uh, he's arguably on a par with Egan because he took over Boxiana, the editorship of Boxiana 4. And if you're reading Boxiana 1, 2, 3, and then you go to Boxiana 4, um, it's almost a seamless transition. Um, but you had the Sporting Magazine, which uh, I believe um, saw light of day in 1792 for the first time. Um, and again, it, it set out its stall pretty early on that it was going to provide um, details of the fights to, to satisfy uh, people's um, thirst for, for, the, for the gaming because um, more, more, gam more gambling um, led to greater toleration of the, of the prize fight activity itself. So we've got we the sporting magazine. Um, I think the yeah Bell's Life in London, um, which was at its I'd probably get its zenith in the around about the same period as, as Boxiana in the in the uh, well eighteen ten eighteen thirty. Um, so uh, Robert Surtees came along and he's. He, he banned it from his sporting magazine, but th by this time we're in 18, 1831. So it had that, on had that golden period, um, and we had Vincent Dowling, John B., and, um, and but by the time it was, um, it was, it was uh, I mean, there was a change of culture as we go into the Victorian period. Bank holidays were greatly reduced. Leisure time was frowned upon. Um, a sport that had been tolerated when it was deemed to be uh, useful in some way when the Napoleonic Wars were on, um, it ceased to be winked at and it, it was um, it was on the decline. And on one or two publications started to it started to disappear from the from the columns, such as the Sporting Magazine. Well, so let's talk about uh, what's at uh, what's at Egan and Boxiana apart, and and I'll ask you first to give a an introduction of him. So, uh, who was he? Who was Pierce Egan? Where was he from? And and how did he come to be part of the fancy? Um, right. Well, he was uh, again. John Reed has done some quite uh, some very much uh, in depth research, and has been over to Ireland, and he tried to get to the bottom of where Pierce Egan was. Was born and he couldn't, he couldn't uh, really nail it down with any degree of certainty. So, he, there is a possibility that Egan was born in Ireland, um, but what is certain is that by the by the time he was a toddler, um, you know, probably age two or three, he he was in London. His 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 mother and father were were certainly from Ireland. They came, they came over. Um, his father was working in London, and we, we see Pierce Egan being brought up in, in the metropolis, 
Um, I think he was quite in a district where it was near to the, the world of the theatre, and this was a, a big influence on Egan. Um, and he's 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 got into the into the world of the of the fancy via the drinking clubs, um, the, the, probably the theatrical circles, um, uh, and it's very much the underworld uh, of literature um, before he breaks into into the sporting journalism because he 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 has a, he he gains experience in in the printing trade. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think this um, is evident sometimes when you're reading Boxiana, the the typographical use of um, the variation Egan uses. There's there's block capitals, there's small capitals, um, uh, italics, um, and you, and you think his 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 experience in the printing trade is coming to the fore there. So, of course, a large part of uh, Egan's writing with, with Boxiana is uh, devoted to the fights themselves, but, but he also presented a much broader view of, of the fancy, and I want to ask in particular about the boxers. How did, how did he present the boxers in his writing? Yes, um, very much in elevated terms, um, using metaphors or analogies that would liken them to classical heroes um, to uh, military figures um, you know, obviously in the, the Napoleonic Wars were raging at the time references to Napoleon and Wellington um, um, I think he was, he was a well educated man and um, he, would, he would use as I said the, the, the classical references um, and he, he certainly uh, there was no condescension uh, from Pierce Egan. He would uh, treat these these men who were coal heavers and and butchers and costermongers. He would um, he would speak of them in elevated terms, and 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 it was almost as if he in the pages of Boxiana and when when these men took into the they might have their travails and their troubles in everyday life about about work and, and money and family and health. But when they entered the prize ring it was almost as if they were they were playing a part and the the eyes the eyes of the world were on them and I suppose to an extent via via Pierce Egan's uh, publicity of them, um uh, to the eyes of the sporting world, um at least uh, the the eyes were very much on them, and yet at the same time he he presented boxers as uh, akin to classical heroes. But an important element of his writing uh, that you talk about is his use of slang, and he did this in a, in a creative and also a careful way. Can you talk about how he how he used slang in his in his writing? Uh, yeah. Um... I think if you if one reads through the the volumes of Boxiana, you can see um, a progression in the in the sophistication of the use of slang. Um, you you could um, go from very very simplistic slang, which could be I mean you could have a person's eye referred to as an ogle, so you, you could have. Egan using the term for a blow to that part of the body 
then all he does is he adds the letter R or the letter E-R to an existing slang word for a body part to denote um, a blow to that part of the body. Well, now, now, that's very basic. That's a very elementary approach. But you see it um, as the, the, the volumes go on that um, he sometimes there's evidence. Well, I, I, I believe I find one or two instances where he will actually arguably coin, coin a new expression, coin a new um, slang word, or if he doesn't use a slang term, he will, he can use just a, an imaginative turn of phrase to transform the the mundane, the banal, into something more mysterious. Um, for example, the people being caught in a, a terrible shower of rain. Um, he describes them as being drippingly, drippingly assailed, um, as opposed to were drenched or soaked to the skin. Um, um, or if somebody received a blow to the head, um, he might say something like, oh, that, that set the botherums on duty in the brain country. <laughs> Which is quite long-winded, but I think that can be excused because it um, it makes it a more interesting read. Mm -hmm. So, are there words or phrases uh, that in Egan's writing that had lasting use in English? Um, well, in my book, I do have um, a slang glossary in the in the in the closing pages, which is. Um, which has been complimented on, I'm pleased to say, as um, one, or two, one or two critics have remarked that uh, they wish they'd had this at their disposal when they were doing their own um, research into an article onto, the, uh, onto this period. Um, I'm not... Uh, to be fair, I'm not, I'm not sure that Egan... I think in the Oxford English Dictionary, there are one or two instances where the first citation of a word or expression is cited, and Boxiana is cited as the first okay. known use. Um, they're, not, they're not very many. I, must, I mean, I, I'm a, obviously I'm a, a supporter of Egan, but I, I, I wouldn't go overboard with my claims for the. Um, certainly, he coined a few. I think a few expressions, but. When I say perhaps that's misleading to say he coined them because they, some of these were once only expressions. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. Well, well, related to that, you do write about in your book uh, about Egan's influence on later nineteenth-century writers and and including Dickens. And so, can you talk about that? Yeah, this is very much a, a, a hotly a hotly debated. Point um, not, not 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 specifically with P.S. Egan, but um, there's 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 a, there's a lot of ongoing research, even even books that are being produced this year about Egan. I don't know if it's putting it too strongly, but Egan's. Sorry, um, I mean, I meant to say Charles Dickens's plagiarism. <laughs> um, people are arguing that he's he's stolen, and I, I don't think I'm putting it too strongly to, to say that they uh, they are accusing Dickens of uh, stealing ideas and, and then passing them off as his own. Um, 
Now, I'm not I'm not saying he's done that with with Piers Egan. If I if I read a, a work by Charles Dickens and I and I stand this side by side with a work by Piers Egan, okay, I'm an I'm an advocate for Piers Egan, but I will fully concede that the superior writing is very much with Charles Dickens. Having said that, um, Dickens, once he was established, seems to have been very swift to to try and quieten down any reference to his the influence that Piers Egan's life in London had on him. Because um, uh, there are obvious links, I think, to be made with a trio of protagonists wandering the metropolis, having sprees and adventures, uh, as Piers Egan does in Life in London, and then for Charles Dickens to produce um, less than, well, approximately 15 years later, The Pickwick Papers. Um, The Pickwick Papers is a superior piece of writing, but... There are there does seem to be a link, and 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 for for Dickens to to totally disown or to almost banish reference to Piers Egan and to life in London seems uh, seems very harsh. On, on the on the reverse side of the coin, I think he, Piers Egan's own work in 1838, um, Pilgrims of the Thames in Search of the National. Um, that could be said that it was um oh that that it could be argued that that was influenced by Dickens' Pickwick papers and certainly one or two of the illustrations has a has a, a rotund Pickwick figure uh, in the foreground. Um but uh, Dickens does make references in one or two of his novels to to pugilists, um, or he uses boxing expressions in uh, Little Dorrit. He uses uh, boxing expression in Martin Chuzzlewit, and also in very early on in Hard Times. Um, there's there's a there's a there's a major reference to the prize fighting world, um, and later on he talks about somebody. Uh, frightened that somebody's going to come round and and challenge them to a tussle in Lancashire fashion, which was a, a rough form of um, prize fighting. So there's there's quite a few pugilistic references uh, that, P, um, that Charles Dickens uses, and the more obvious link is with his metropolitan work. Um, um, I'm 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 going to not be too. Um, uh, decisive on that point. Um, I, I think that it can be argued that Dickens um, did use Egan's uh, work as a, as a as a, an influence, um, but I'm not going to. I don't argue too strongly uh, because the, the the quality of Dickens' writing is is superior to Egan's. Mm-hmm. And you do see uh, as well, and you talk about this in the book, uh, some some. I want to say distant echoes of Egan's style of writing in in contemporary sports writing. Yes, yes, I, I do. Um, I, I think what, the temptation when when looking at the array of reports and um, also I've got to be the temptation to go into a, a different broadcast medium. 
um, where I cease to look at the written word. Um, and I, so I'm, I'm a bit wary about dwelling too long on on radio, the spoken word, the, the, or TV broadcasts, because um, I, I do uh, draw a few parallels, certainly. Um, but uh, it's obviously a different medium. Um, and uh, but, but boxing writing, um, the, the work of Norman Mailer when he's writing about uh, Muhammad Ali, um, A.J. Liebling, the 20th century, uh, I think he wrote for the New Yorker, uh, and he he makes specific re- reference that he was a fan of P.S. Egan. Um, there's um, so there's quite a few boxing ref- uh, where you can draw a, a line between or a, from P.S. Egan's 19th century works through to the 20th century and Liebling and Liebling says that as Egan might have termed it, um, and then. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, it's easy to cherry pick mm-hmm. because one can go through and 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 and, and, ch- and cherry pick the prime examples or the other amusing takes where you could say, well, this in its whilst you can't directly relate it to Peter Egan's Boxiana writing. Um, what I sometimes say is, I think it's very much in the Egan-esque spirit. Mm-hmm. It's trying to um, elevate the mundane. It's it's trying to breach that discrepancy between um, promise and reality. The the often slick build up to a sporting event, this anticipation, and then one seated in front of your big screen TV, the floodlights are on. The, the gladiators or the sportsmen take the arena and the actual sporting event starts and it is drab and it is boring and it is an anticlimax <laughs> and all the time obviously but this is where the this um, imaginative creativity of the either the sports broadcaster or as I'll, I'll prefer to the sports writer this is where they have sometimes a bit of if if you approve of artistic license, and I think it's probably clear from my book that I do approve of it, I think there's times where remaining too faithful to the facts is, is just too um, uh, tedious. Mm-hmm. And you've got to breathe breathe some life into the reporting and, and, and make a little give give the reporter a little bit of uh, creative leeway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As as I was reading the book, I, I enjoyed your comment right there. I was trying to think of a con- contemporary, current, current day analogy to Egan, and so so in this day of blog writing, we do seemingly have a, a similar situation to Egan's time in terms of the wealth of writing that's that's available. And uh, I was trying to think of of anybody. Do you have ideas of of anyone who has the same approach as Egan in terms of? the amount of writing, uh, the quality of writing, and, and also the inventiveness that Egan had? I think there is a, there is a greater array of... There, there is either a greater array of inventive, uh, ingenious uh, writers around now, or they have more 
um, license allowed to express themselves where in in 19th century terms uh, it was more straight-laced and the I think the the word maverick the word a maverick reporter has is now devalued so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it, it is become devalued the, there's an overabundance of of writers or or, or even if we if you go into the sporting arena, perhaps sportsmen who are who are either self-styled or are styled by the pundits as being entertainers or mavericks, um, and I, th- I think that the word is bandied about a little a little too much. But there's certainly a lot of it, as I say a lot of inventive uh, reporting reporting out there. And in fact. Um, the, if, if I was going to try and pick parallels now with the with Egan, there would be there would be an overabundance there. It, 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 I think it would be it would come almost a pointless exercise. Egan was more of a in his period, and even arguably into the first half of the 20th century, he was more of a rarity. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't stand out now. Mm. Uh, uh, but even in today's world. Um, there's there's things that make me sit up. Um, I think it was the the NFL season, not last season, the season before, where the the, the British coverage, which is only um, a one hour's highlight program, it was it was watching a uh, New England Patriots game. It was the last seconds. The crowd was streaming. They'd given up on their team, and I think Tom Brady, the quarterback, throws a, a tremendous pass, which is Picked, uh, caught in the end zone by one of the receivers, and the and the um, the reporter just um, the broadcaster just goes got off on a tangent where he starts saying about uh, something like unicorns, show ponies, where's the beef? And it was just a, almost a surreal piece of sporting commentary. <laughs> um, and, I, and and the, and the references. Um, to a to an old TV commercial, but I don't think that's the point. I I hadn't heard of this TV commercial. You don't get it in Britain, or you didn't get it in Britain. Where's the beef? But you, I, I knew instinctively where the report, it, the the fact that he was making cultural references to things I'd never heard of before, didn't know about. It didn't really matter. I knew what he meant. It was it was in that what I would say that that uh, flamboyant spirit, and he, he conveyed exactly what when you, I knew what he was conveying, but he um, even though the cultural references I, I I wasn't specifically sure of them. Well, David, we're almost out of time, and uh, so to finish up, I'll ask you. So, what are you what are you working on now? Um, well, I've just had a, uh, an article published um, for to do with the the. the, the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, where I'm, I'm linking. Uh, it's the it's the Historian um, magazine. So that was um, I was linking the the prize fighting mentality of a British nation um, and the manliness, the hardihood it was supposed to breed in its um, population in general. Um, I was linking that with the with the 200th anniversary. I, I, what I Entitled the piece Waterloo's Prize Fight Factor, so that's that's just being published. So that topic of uh, uh, 
fighting and masculinity and and English nationalism during the Napoleonic era. I, I completely forgot to ask about that, but this is really a, a a key theme of the fancy as well as as well as Egan's writing. Oh yes, very very much so. In fact, um, one of my chapters in the book is. Um, uh, devote a great deal of space to the, um, the question that this the if we we don't even have to look at the pugilists themselves if we look at the the people who followed them the 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 stamina that sometimes they've got to uh, in, in the endurance that they've got to uh, exhibit to just just to get to the fight at times and and the, and the, the traipsing around the countryside and then when the, the fights themselves take place there's it, it fended off what he what he uh, perceived as, or the nation perceived as, as this emasculation, uh, uh, which was viewed on as a foreign f- foreign effeminacy. It's a, it's a phrase French effeminacy is a phrase that crops up quite a bit in the Boxiana writings, and it said this, the, the fortitude and the hardihood. Um, and this stamina, pluck, whichever adjective you want to apply to it, um, the the world of price writing and um, this this built built up and it became inherent in the, in the in the British nation. You've been listening to an interview with David Snowden about his book, Writing the Prize Fight: Pierce Egan's Boxiana World, published in 2013 by Peter Long. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, biography, popular music, and more. Go to newbooksnetwork.com to find the subjects you're interested in. And if you like what you heard here, please follow us on Twitter at newbooksports.com. Or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.